Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 56. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdmen's herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, uh, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone, has, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, Child, arise. 
and her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So to start off this morning, I want to take us back to the beginning of the book of Luke. Do you remember 33 sermons ago when we started this whole deal, where we started off the book of Luke, and we find um, Luke's purpose statement for, for what he's doing here. What is Luke about in writing the gospel of Luke? He has laid out his mission. He has said, this is what I'm doing this for. Do you remember what that is? It was only 32 sermons ago, 33 sermons ago, with a dozen mixed in the middle. Do you remember what that was? No. So we go back to Luke chapter 1. It's, it's really easy to find. What is Luke writing for? Luke chapter 1, verse 3, we find out, that Luke has written this to a man named Theophilus. It seemed good to me also, Luke is saying, verse 3, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 4 is his purpose statement, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He's writing this purpose statement. He's written it down for Theophilus. He's recording these events. He's sharing them with him so that Theophilus can have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. This isn't a purpose statement just for the first chapter of the book of Luke. This is the purpose statement throughout Luke, and I'd probably argue also through his second letter, the book of Acts, to Theophilus, that he's wanting to give Theophilus certainty about who Jesus is and about who Jesus claimed to be. So when we come to a passage like this morning, and really all of this chapter 8 with these miracles, we need to keep in mind that what Luke is recording, he's gathered these together so that the reader would have certainty whenever they hear this. And I, I bring this up because we have to fight for this objective today in churches. We, we gather, when we gather here on a Sunday morning, we gather in a quest to find out what is true, what is real. What's reality? What is true? That is our goal here. We gather to remind ourselves of what is true. And I have to say that because that gets lost often in our modern churches today. We do not gather to make ourselves feel better as our primary goal. That we gather, we pat each other on the back, and we just kind of walk out feeling better because we've kind of done our duty and we feel kind of lighthearted. That's what many churches gather for in our modern culture today, just kind of a social gathering, a social club. That is not what we gather for. We do not gather with feelings as our primary goal. We gather that we might hear the truth of God's word. We might hear the reality of who we are, who God is, what that means, what God has done for us, to hear that truth. And then, yes, I will say, feeling good is a natural byproduct of knowing the truth and embracing who God is and who Christ is for us. But if we switch those realities to where it's just about warm fuzzies, apart from certainty, apart from truth, the warm fuzzies that we may get from gathering together blow away when the trials of life come along. We do not gather for the feels. We gather for what is real. We gather for what is real. We do not gather just to stir up feelings, but to find out and to find true 
meaning. And this is what Luke is trying to get across. This is why he's gathered these four stories together in this section to get across the reality of who Jesus is. So that means I want you to work hard at something this morning. We've already read through the passage, but I want you to work hard to get your mind out of just Bible listening mode. Like, it's whenever I sit down with my kids at night and we get out um, some Disney story, Beauty and the Beast, and, which I just read last night. It's a great story, a little golden book. You know what I'm talking about? They got a little gold foil on the side. Uh, we read those kind of stories. And they're, fu- they're fairy tales, you know, they're, they're make-believe stories. They're entertaining, they're interesting, isn't that neat? And sometimes we open up our Bible like it's a golden book. Like it's got foil, gold foil down the side. And boy, they're interesting stories and, you know, they tell good moral principles. But, you know, it's, at the end of the day, it's just a story. That's not Luke's position in writing the Gospel of Luke. His position is he wants Theophilus to know this is what's true. This is what's happened. And when he relates these stories to Jesus, I want, about Jesus, I want us to work hard listening to the reality that Luke is sharing, that he is relaying this for us to listen to it, to believe in it, and to rejoice over this reality of who Jesus is. Not some moral principle, but truth, reality. And that's what we're working for this morning. Titled the sermon, Removing Doubt, Jesus' power over demons, disease, and death. And we're just going to kind of look at them here in order. Jesus' power over demons. This is not, we saw, we, as we read through the text here, this isn't Jesus' first encounter with demons. Back in Luke chapter 4, you remember he's doing his circuit preaching in synagogues and there's a guy who calls out, you are the Holy One of God. And, and Jesus rebukes the demon and the demon leaves the guy right there in the synagogue. But even in, and then later on, he's casting out tons of demons from all kinds of people. And he's had, he's had encounters with demons, but none of them have been quite like this one. Those seem to be types of demonic activity. The man was sitting in synagogue. The people were coming to Jesus to get healed of demons, diseases, and whatever. This guy's different. This is a special case. This isn't just your run-of-the-mill, if you could say there is such a thing. This isn't your run-of-the-mill demon possession. This guy has gone crazy. This guy is filled with demonic spirits. Jesus has just stepped out of this boat after calming the storm. And what does he find? He finds not a storm of nature, but a storm of demonic activity inside of one man. This guy is a mess. This man is an extreme case. We read that he has broken chains. They can't keep him tied down. They put chains and shackles on him, but he breaks them. He runs around naked. He's not clothed, which you're not in your right mind if you're doing that. There's a natural shame that comes or something like that. This man has lost his mind. Mark tells us that he's sleeping among the tombs. Luke just kind of says in the desert, but Mark has this additional detail of among the tombs. He's living in cemeteries. He's just gone mad. Jesus shows up, the man runs down, and he asks him his name, and he says, my name is Legion. Now, we could speculate a ton on that. Legion typically refers to a, a group of soldiers of about 6,000 men. Now, we don't know if that means there's 6,000 demons in this man. Mark seems to think that whenever he sends the demons off of the pig, there's about 2,000 pigs that the demons go into. But that doesn't really help us either on how many, because what's the, what's the demon to pig ratio? 
Is it like one demon to one pig? We don't really know. It doesn't give us that sort of detail. But this man's got big problems. But what I want us to notice is the power of Jesus in this scenario. All of those details. Notice the power of Jesus. When he shows up, the demons immediately begin to beg him not to torment them. So this man walking the earth has got such authority, these demons know, please do not torment us. They have to beg Jesus not to torment him. He asks them a question, and they have to give an answer. What's your name? They answer. He interrogates them, and they answer it. They beg him not to be sent into the abyss. They beg. They know Jesus has the power. These dark supernatural forces, we have no idea how to really understand, have to beg Jesus. They know he can throw them into the abyss. And they beg him not to do this. And then lastly, all of these things, they beg him not to torment them. He interrogates them. They answer. They beg him not to be sent to the abyss. And then they beg him to let, give them permission, to give him permission to enter into the pigs. Jesus has got the power in this scenario. What does Jesus do? They ask these questions. Don't torment us. Uh, he asks them a question. They answer, don't throw us into the abyss. Let us go into the pigs. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does exactly what he wants to do. Jesus does exactly what he wants to do. Do you ever notice and think about, just as you go through your day and you look back, I'm not that old, but at 38, I look back over and I try to think about the things in my life that have gone exactly like I wanted them to. And, and the more I think about it, I just realize that life is this adventure of never having anything go exactly the way you want it to. Like even, I mean, if you plan out a great vacation, here's the details, this, then this, then this, and this, and say everything relatively goes well, or you plan a party for your family and they come over and all the details work out, at the end of the day, you still can't say everything went exactly the way. You feel kind of a letdown. You feel like, oh, this, that could have, I, I thought, um, oh, it's like graduation. You know, you, when you're a kid, you think there's this idyllic moment when I'm going to graduate, I'm going to throw that cap into the air, and it, it's going to be amazing. Confetti's going to fall, you know, or whatever. It's just going to be this amazing moment. And you get there, and you're like, well, this is, I don't know. I feel like I'm just in a funny-looking gown and going to go eat some cake. You know, and, and even that, all of these heightened events, Nothing is exactly, life is just one big adventure of things never going the way you really want them to. But for Jesus, I mean, think how much a, a demonic presence could ruin your plans. It ain't messing with Jesus. Not touching him. He gets and he does exactly what he wants to do. Jesus does as he wills. The demons leave the man. When the townspeople hear of it, they come out and they find the man clothed and in his right mind. And what happens? They're terrified. The scary man who is demon-possessed, breaks chains, runs around naked, lives in cemeteries, he's scary. The only thing scarier than that man is the guy who has authority and tells those demons to flee. Then they're terrified and they beg Jesus to leave. They beg Jesus to leave and so he does. But something unique happens in this situation. Normally, when a man comes to Jesus, what have we seen the pattern be? Come follow me. He'll, he'll, he'll say a person, he'll say, come follow me, I'll make, you'll, um, you'll be fish for men. He'll say something along those lines. Just go sell everything, he says, the rich young ruler, and come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. With the demoniac, 
He begs to come with Jesus, and Jesus sends him home. Jesus says, it's interesting, if you have your Bible out still, I want you to look at this. Verse 39, Jesus tells the man, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He commands the man, go tell what God has done for you. And then he goes off and he says what Jesus has done. Has the man disobeyed a direct order from his Savior? Jesus told him to go say what God has done. And he goes around and he tells what Jesus has done. Is the man in disobedience or is the man, does the man get it? And he's in exact obedience. This man who has authority over these legions of demons is God. To speak of God is to speak of Jesus. He is obeying because Jesus is God. He tells him to go home, say what God has done, and he goes and he says what Jesus has done. Side note, this man was obviously greatly loved by Jesus. He makes a request. What does Jesus say? No. Sometimes, sometimes you make your request, and for your own good, the answer is a no. That's a side note. So Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus has authority over disease. Next we go to this story in between Jairus' daughter with a woman with the issue of blood. She has spent all of her resources. For 12 years, she's been fighting this problem. And as far as solutions, she's continued. The problem is perpetual. It's habitual. For solutions, there is no natural solution. She, she has given up. There's nothing more to, to do naturally. And do you notice the desperate conditions here? Demon-possessed, nothing, no one can touch him. Jesus shows up, I can take care of that. This woman, issue with blood, works, works, works to get it fixed, can't do anything about it, desperate. Jesus shows up, I can take care of that. Jesus is about f- helping people in desperate conditions. This is, there's, there's no solution for this woman unless you meet the capital S solution, the solution. She crawls through the crowd, is pressing in on Jesus, and just grabs the hem or the tassels of his garment. And when power leaves Jesus, the woman is healed. And we've noted Jesus has power over the demons, powers over disease, but look at his purpose in the healing of the disease. When, when, when this healing power goes out and this woman is healed, Jesus doesn't, doesn't, doesn't just think, oh, well, that's the end of the story. She was after her physical healing, and, and now she's got it. That's good enough. He calls attention. He's trying to make a point. What's this about? Something has happened. I want to know who it is. Let's draw attention to this scenario. What's going on? Why? He doesn't just let her slide off. And why? And I would argue that it's because Jesus is after this woman, her heart, not just her temporary healing. These miracles of Jesus are never just about these, the um, circumstantial surface issues. Jesus is in the business of rescuing people. And so this woman who has just crawled up, touched the hem of his garment, could very well walk away and think, well, there's something magical about this garment. I mean, that's, that's how you get healed. You, you got to touch this. Uh, maybe if we find that coat, I know the guy's dead, but if we could go find his coat, that garment he was wearing, there's something magical about his garment. Some superstitious belief about Jesus' healing could have developed, but Jesus doesn't want that. He doesn't want some superstitious belief. She wants her to trust him. So Jesus makes sure that she knows it is her faith. Faith always has an object. It is her faith in him that has been the vehicle for her healing. When it comes to any of these miraculous events, we must remember a couple of important realities. 
these were, first is that these were only temporary solutions. This woman, she's healed from her issue of blood, but she's going to die eventually. She, this, the, this man with the demons that they're cast out of, this is a great event, but you know what? He's not here today. He eventually does die. These are all temporary solutions. And I have no desire to discredit the incredible nature of the miracles, but I want to point out that the greatest miracle that goes on is that they saw Jesus and believed in him. That's the miracle. These temporary things are incredible. They are, they're wonderful, and they, I don't want to discount them, but we have to lift up the incredible miracle of being given a new heart and trusting Christ. That's the miracle. That, and I think of it this way. That woman on her deathbed, as she's talking to those who are gathered around her, and she relays the story possibly, you know, when, when I, Jesus healed me of this issue of blood, but is she going to encourage them to go find Jesus, him of his garment? Is she going to encourage them to, to get their temporary problems fixed? Or is she going to say, look to Jesus, have faith in Jesus. He's the answer. He's the one. That's the miracle. She's going to be on her deathbed, not remembering and thinking about some temporary moment of healing, but the eternal everlasting life she's been given through faith in Jesus. She's going to be reveling in the thought of her Savior taking notice of her and encouraging those around her to trust, not the hem of his garment, not to trust for temporary relief, but to trust in Jesus. So Jesus heals this woman's disease, this issue of blood, and it comes to this weird spot in the middle of the story of Jairus, just some suspense built right into it. Jesus has power over demons, he has power over disease, he has power over death. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, not well, his only daughter, he loves her very much. He goes and seeks out Jesus, come and heal my daughter. Okay, on the way, what happens? They get held up by this woman with the issue of blood. Let's go, Jesus. Uh, you know, she's had this problem for 12 years. My 12-year-old daughter is, is at the end of her life. Come now, we'll come back to the year, the lady with the problem for 12 years. You can imagine the frustration and on top of that frustration of this delay, while Jesus is healing and ministering to this woman, what happens? People come and tell Jairus, your daughter is dead. It's too late. Call the master off. Don't bother him. The news comes. It's no longer urgent. Jesus, Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus hears this, though, and in verse 50, he encourages Jairus to believe. Believe. He says, he says, Right out to him, um, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Who can talk like that? If you've just suffered a crushing loss, gotten news that a loved one has died, and somebody comes to you and says, oh, don't worry, just believe, and everything will be okay. Would, I, wouldn't you want to punch the person almost? He'd be like, what are you, who are you talking, well, are you kidding me? All this that's going on, who gets to talk like this? It's, that's radical. Don't worry, all will be well, only believe. Only believe, and she'll be well. Incredible statement. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. How in the world can this man talk like this? Hopefully, you never meet anyone who makes claims like that to you when you're going through trials, when, th- when news comes upside down. But Jesus doesn't just talk like this. Jesus, does, Jesus doesn't just make claims. He displays. He doesn't just claim. He displays. He shows up, they get to Jairus' house, and long story short, he brings her back to life. He doesn't just claim, 
He doesn't just put on, put out words. He shows it. He shows it that not only does he have authority over nature, which we discussed last week, he has authority over nature. He has authority over the, the, the most desperate situations of demonic possession, the darkest thing you can think of, he has authority over. Disease, he has authority over it. Death itself, ramping up. Death that none of us escape. Who has authority over death? Jesus does. Jesus does. Don't get so used to these events in Jesus' life that you cease to have your breath taken away when you hear them. Little girl, his father's joy, ill to the point of death, she dies. Jesus commands her, arise, and she does. She does. Everyone there knows it. They laugh at him. She's dead. Jesus commands her to rise up, and she does. Certainty. That's what Luke is after. Certainty. This Jesus is not like any other leader. He's not like any other teacher. He is the God-man. How does this impact us today? Jesus puts on display eyewitness accounts recorded to us by Luke that we might have certainty. How does this impact us today? Immensely. Immensely. Is there anything we can be certain of in our world today? And honestly, there are very few things you can be certain of. Identity is nothing we can be certain of anymore. Uh, meaning, purpose, we can't be certain of anymore. People make promises. We cannot be certain of hardly anything in our culture today. It's changing. It's this, that. It's whatever the individual wills. That's, that's it. We, we, we are left with no purpose, no meaning, no real identity, no promises, no truth. They're just fluid in our culture today. And we and our children are worse off for it. But I want to declare, we gather in church on a Sunday morning to say there is something to be certain of. There is someone who is certain. It is not the one who only says he is something, but the one who displays who he truly is and who he claims to be. What is it that this man who displays his power and authority over nature, demons, disease, and death is asking of us? Why is he displaying all of this? Why is he displaying all of this? so that our doubts would be removed and that we would believe. Who is this man? What, what can he be certain of in life? Jesus is showing up. Nature, storms, I got that. Darkest thing you can imagine, I got that. Disease that's incurable, 12 years been wrestling with this, I can take care of that. Death itself, I can tell someone to arise. He's provoking, removing doubt and beckoning to us to believe that our doubts would be removed and that we would believe. John chapter 6, verse 40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. John six forty. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's not a direct cross-reference to this passage, but the pro that promise has been in my mind a lot lately. John 6.40. Why does Jesus display all this power? To remove doubt, Jesus says who he is. 
to remove doubt. And having removed all doubt, Jesus commands belief. This man showing this power is going to go to a cross. He's going to die. He's come to seek and to save the lost. He's going to give up his life on the cross in the place of sinners. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead himself. He's going to rise from the grave. And what he's calling for this morning out of sinners like you and me is to remove the doubts. Look at this man's life. He doesn't just claim it. He displays it. Remove doubts and trust. Repent and trust in him. The God who doesn't just say, but the God who displays. Trust him and have eternal life. Trust him and be raised on the last day to new life where demons, disease, and death will truly be no more. That, this is truth. This is the certainty Luke is working for. These are the claims from someone who backed up what they said by what they did. Don't go searching. Don't go searching for your joy out there in a thousand lesser and temporary false realities. Trust the one true reality, capital R, reality, the character, the nature, and the work of Christ and have true, lasting, and eternal joy in knowing him. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see. I pray you would take off our... um, just familiarity lenses to the radical display of who you are, the one who has authority over everything, that God, you would, by your Holy Spirit, remove all doubts and give us the gift of faith that we would look to you, trust in you, inherit eternal life, and look forward to the promise that on that last day we will be raised. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.